This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and I am so excited to be bringing forward a really cool episode with one of my ethnobotany heroes, um, Dr. Mark Plotkin. So Mark is an ethnobotanist who serves as the president of the Amazon Conservation Team, which has partnered with 55 tribes to map and improve management and protection of over 80 million acres of ancestral rainforests. His, uh, his first book, Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice, is really what got me excited about the entire field of ethnobotany. And, um, you know, I don't exaggerate when I say he really made a defining um, impact on my career path. And I was so excited to see his newest book, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know, that's out now with Oxford University Press. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Mark. I'm excited to speak with you about this latest work. My pleasure, Cassie. Yeah, so I thought for the purposes of the show, which is really focused on this concept of the food medicine continuum and where our food comes from, that perhaps we could start with some basic questions around the Amazon. What is the terrain like in the Amazon? And is it a good place to grow crops on a large scale? Why or why not? Well, it's equatorial rainforest, which means lots of rainfall. And unlike in Indonesia, for example, which is uh, volcanic soil, um, it's really not a great place for large-scale agriculture. This is the genius of our tribal colleagues. We as ethnobotanists know they figured out how to, how to deal with that, which is small clearings in the forest, uh, do it for a couple of years, let it lie fallow, and then, you know, after a while you can come back. But monoculture... Uh, really isn't a very good idea. Uh, and of course, most ethnobotanists think it isn't really a very good idea anywhere uh, in terms of pests, in terms of diseases. So in a sense, the, the, the Amazon is like Iowa, uh, only more so in the sense that you have heavier rain, poorer soil, and more susceptibility to pests and diseases. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the soil. In your book, you go into great detail in nutrient cycling in a rainforest environment. What, what is nutrient cycling and how does that work? Well, this is just how chemicals move through the system. And of course, the most important chemicals in terms of agriculture are things that are, are nutrients for the plants and ultimately for our own species. And the point that I make in, in, in the new book is that when you move the rainforest, uh, the, the, the nutrients don't cycle or don't cycle like they used to. They don't come out of the soil. They don't uh, go back into the soil from the plants. And then you have to replace it. And just like here in the States or in Italy or anywhere else, replacement usually means chemicals and chemicals means runoff and runoff means uh, bad effects on, on the wildlife. And remember, of course, the most important protein source in the Amazon is not cattle, it's fish. So when you have toxic chemicals going into the water, it goes into the fish and it goes into our bodies as well eventually. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things about your latest book is how you describe the diversity of fish and the river systems. And you talk about um, one fish in particular that I think a lot of people are, are always curious about, and that's the piranha. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the fish of the Amazon? Well, it's the most diverse fish fauna on, 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 on the planet. The, the number of species in the Amazon exceeds that of the Congo and the Mississippi combined. Wow. So it's, it's truly mind-boggling. And we hear about these weird fish like the piranha. I mean, all of us grew up with hearing scary stories or seeing scary movies about that. And you know what? They are scary. 
<laughs> For the most part, though, they don't attack every uh, human uh, that they see, but on occasion they do. And it, it's interesting because you have this sort of bifurcation of of natural history uh, retelling of, of what Piranha is all about. On the one hand, uh, like in, in movies in, in the 60s, they were these voracious, ferocious predators who ate everything all the time. And then you have this sort of, well, they're not so bad and we should really be worried about them. And well, they aren't as bad as they've been portrayed. And we shouldn't be overly worried about them. But, you know, there's many millions of people in the Amazon that bathe in these rivers every day. So clearly these piranhas are not attacking everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to explain what the true story is. And the true story is in the dry season when they're concentrated in these isolated pools and they don't have much to eat, they look like a 1950s horror movie. For the most part, they don't bother people. Um, but on occasion they do. It's like my, my mentor Schultes would say, you know, these plants and animals don't read our textbooks. So sometimes they don't follow the rules that we've been taught. That's great. And they're, they're also useful in, in local uses. Um, you mentioned in the book, um, the utility of their very sharp teeth. Um, how do local people use them? Well, nothing goes to waste in the rainforest. First of all, they are a primary food fish. They're very bony, but they're very tasty, and people tend to get around the bony issue by making soup out of them. Uh, in the not-so-distant past, uh, many of my Amerindian colleagues and teachers would use the jaws and the teeth, first of all, as tools. They would scrape their hunting bows using uh, piranha jaws with the, the teeth intact. My friends amongst the Kamayura and other tribes in the Shingu region in the southeast Amazon would use it to scratch plants into the bloodstream. Now, let me explain what's going on here. They take these plants, which they say make you healthier, stimulate the immune system, make you more muscular. They crush them, rub them on your skin, and then scrape them into your your skin and, and essentially your bloodstream with these piranha jaws. So it's definitely painful, um, but uh, this is a common practice. I've done it. it. It definitely hurts. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting when you think about that in perspective of, of modern medical innovations where we're now looking at microneedle patches and other ways of delivering drugs across the skin, and this is a practice that's been um, in place for millennia already. You know, Cassie, all of us who work with other cultures find out how much more they know than we think they know. And whether they're, 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 they're peasants in Italy or whether they're peasants in Brazil, uh, people are pretty smart and people are pretty adaptable. Case in point, uh, my previous book, The Killers Within, was, out, was about the deadly rise of drug-resistant bacteria. And when Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, uh, many midwives came forward and said, well, we, you know, keep moldy bread in our windowsill, which we apply to uh, wounds and, and other areas we don't want to get infected. So who really discovered penicillin? <laughs> and, the, you know, the, this, this point you're making about, well, maybe this whole idea of a new form of injections was really invented by guys in breechcloths or less in the Amazon uh, doesn't seem too far-fetched to me. And I'll, I'll finish with one point. I was doing a little film in Suriname once, and the shaman was treating a patient, and the cameraman said, uh, what's he doing? And I asked the, the shaman, he says, well, the patient's body has been invaded by invisible spirit ants, and I'm using the medicine 
to get in the bloodstream and kill those spirit ants because if I don't, uh, the spirit ants will multiply and kill the patient. And I translated this for the camera and he said, what a bunch of BS. And I said, really? Because this sure sounds like uh, he's fighting a, a, a bacterial infection or a viral infection or a, a, a protozoal infection to me. So yeah. sometimes when we're arrogant and think, you know, what can this primitive person know? What can this preliterate person know? Actually, in, in some cases, not all of them, they know a lot. And sometimes a lot more than we do. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that you know, this is something I've observed in many systems of traditional medicine is this amazing attention to detail and observation of symptoms, but also observations of the natural environment and a better understanding of these very complex interactions um, at levels that even in, in modern science, we struggle to understand. Um, case in point is, you know, the chemistry of plants and how complex it can be because those leaves that they're applying for medicinal purposes are not a single compound drug. You have many, many different molecules at play that could be hitting many different targets to achieve the desired effect. And I think, yeah, there's so much we can learn. Um, well, let me give you an example that fits right, right under the rubric of, of the foodie pharmacy. We all know the story of quinine from the cinchona tree. Um, it is a food and a medicine because it's a source of tonic, real tonic, the original tonic. Um, so it was a food and a medicine. But here's a story very few people outside the ethnobotanical community know. In the 50s, when they're giving quinine to people in the States, or quinine bark at least, uh, people with cardiac arrhythmias started getting better, totally unanticipated. And they tried to figure out what's going on. Well, it turns out that quinine bark not only has quinine, it also has quinidine, another alkaloid, which has a very important effect on cardiac arrhythmias. So when we try and go to the, 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 the one chemical, this, this magic bullet approach, we sometimes lose uh, some of the ancillary benefits. And, and I'm, I'm telling that for a reason, because first of all, all of the story about quinine derivatives in the news and COVID-19, I'd, I'd like to know if anybody tried quinine bark as a treatment for this or other viral diseases that, you know, afflict us. We don't have a vaccine yet for, for AIDS, for example. Also, uh, keep in mind that uh, malaria has become resistant to quinine. But when I asked a Colombian physician how he treated drug-resistant malaria, he said with quinine bark. And I said, no, no, not no, because it's resistant to quinine. He said, no, you because resistant to quinine, but when I use quinine bark, which has many compounds in it, other alkaloids and other classes of compounds, it defeats drug-resistant malaria. Yeah, you know, I've seen similar reports to this also for artemisia coming from China. Um, yes. Artemisia annua, for, in the, which is the source of artemisinin, also for um, the treatment of malaria. And there's a really beautiful paper um, in the literature that shows that whole therapy with whole leaf therapy with artemisia can overcome resistance um, in artemisinin resistant um, strains of, of the malarium um, plasmodium. And that's just, it's, it's so true. You think about the way that nature works. Again, there's lots of different backup plans within the chemistry of, of different creatures, and they don't rely on just a one-shot um, approach to treating disease. And I mean, this is what I've dedicated my career to, is really trying to investigate and understand 
how these molecules work together to treat um, different kinds of infections. And, you know, we learn more and more every day. It's, there's just so much though still to explore. Well, on this topic, well, yeah, go ahead. You know, one of the reasons we've lost our way and ended up with this terrible pandemic, when I pitched my previous book to a publisher uh, about the rise of drug-resistant bacteria, the publisher said, I'm not buying this book from you. You're not a doctor. And I said, no, I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm a biologist. And biologists understand evolution better than medical doctors. And the reason we're in the situation we're in is because the medical establishment, the public health establishment, more importantly, the political establishment doesn't understand evolution. And that's why things are bad and they're going to get worse. Well, in, in so doing and in so saying, uh, I was essentially predicting that there's more resistance, more new diseases on the way. And here we are. Absolutely. And as we continue to, um, you know, interface with nature in more disturbing and destructive ways, it's opening up all these opportunities for spillover um, of, of new and emerging diseases. Uh, well, on a happier note, <laughs> let's, let's talk a bit about shamanism and what, what do indigenous healers, how, what is their view of, of medicine and what have you observed in your years of working collaboratively with shaman in the Amazon? Well, you got to remember, first of all, there's between three and 400 tribes of indigenous peoples in the Amazon. So, you know, saying what do, what do, what do shamans think is like saying, what do Americans think? Mm. You know, there's yeah. a lot of diversity. And even within the tribe, I find that, that shamans will differ, that one will use this plant to treat something, one will use that plant at a different dosage to treat something, another will use a completely different plant. So we have to understand that we're generalizing here. And I uh, have met... Uh, men and women, the tribal healers who run the gamut from saying Western medicine is infinitely better to Western medicine uh, knows nothing compared to what I know. Most people are right in the middle and say Western medicine does some things better than we do, and we do some things better than they do. Look, I mean, we have to keep in mind Western medicine is the most sophisticated and successful system of medicine ever devised. That being said, it's also full of holes. Okay, where's the cure for COVID-19? Where's the cure for AIDS? Where's the cure for insomnia? Where's the cure for cancer? Western medicine doesn't seem to have them. Uh, I'm not saying indigenous medicine has them, uh, but uh, here's a, a, a pithier way of putting it. Anybody who says shamans in the Amazon have a cure for COVID-19 is a fool in the sense that it hasn't been proven. But anybody who says shamans in the Amazon don't have a cure or a potential cure for it is a bigger fool. So the, the point I'm trying to make here, Cassie, is that it's not the medicine man versus the microchip. Yeah. It's the, the, the sweet spot somewhere in between. And as you see in the Quave Lab, as we see in any uh, pharmaceutical company which is open to natural products, the best is a meeting of the minds and a meeting of the worlds. Uh, some of the most important medicines or medical advances that have come out of indigenous medicine, whether it's the Amazon, whether it's uh, the boreal forest, come from compounds in nature, not just plants, but particularly poisons and poisonous insects, come from the fact that these poisons can teach us better how the 
the immune system works, how the nervous system works, and that we can learn from that and devise medicines from that lesson. So it's not like the old days of going down there, coming back with an alkaloid, and either it cures or it doesn't. It's gotten much more complex, and in so doing, it's become much more promising. The second point I want to make in answer to your question is that it's not just whether the medicine woman or the medicine man has the cure for X, Y, or Z. It is the lessons we can learn from these people about treatment, application, ceremony. And people have, have long said to me, you know, well, if, if there's all these cures in the Amazon, where are they? Well, if the pharmaceutical companies aren't looking for them, is it any surprise we're not finding them? The, the concrete proof of the value of their wisdom and the fact that the value of their wisdom extends far beyond the plant compounds is the new center at Johns Hopkins for the study of entheogenic research, the use of hallucinogenic plants and fungi for treatment of so-called incurable diseases like uh, schizophrenia, uh, depression, PTSD, and these things are firmly grounded in shamanic cultures and shamanic wisdom. So yes, there are advances uh, of, of, of treatments using tropical plants and fungi, and it's based on shamanic wisdom. Yeah, I think what's really key here too is this idea of holistic therapy. I feel like this is something that's really missing in our general approach to medicine often in the West is it's very transactional, very rapid. There's little personal connection between healer and patient. And this is the complete antithesis to what you see in traditional medicine where you have, you know, a deeper relationship, a deeper connection, both with the healer and the patient, but also with nature and with the, the therapeutic process. Um, Totally agreed. And one other missing component is uh, proactive uh, approaches, which is drink this and you won't get sick. Mm, You know, how many times you've been to an MD where she told you drink this and you don't get sick or eat this and you won't get sick. I mean, I've never had that experience, but I sure (laughs) had it plenty with uh, medicine men and women, PI, shamans, curanderos in Amazonia and, and a few other places I've been. Yeah, that's great. Well, you, you mentioned some of the work being done at Johns Hopkins, and I know that one of those entheogens that's drawn a lot of interest over the past 10 years or so has been that of ayahuasca. Could you tell us a little bit about your knowledge of ayahuasca from observing healers that use it in their healing practice? <laughs> well, I'd rather say that I, my knowledge comes not from observing healers, but being uh, a participant in ceremonies I've been invited to participate in. You know, I, I often heard uh, Schultes ask, what's the difference between an ethnobotanist and an anthropologist? And he said, well, the basic difference is when the anthropologist is offered the sacred brew, whether it's ayahuasca or the uh, yopo, the sacred snuff, or peyote, he says the anthropologist often says, well, I can't take that because I lose my objectivity, whereas the ethnobotanist very appropriately says, pass it on over. <laughs> That's great. So ayahuasca is the vision vine of the uh, Northwest Amazon. Uh, it's now taken off like a rocket. You can buy the stuff on the internet. You know, there's workshops from Israel to Istanbul to Indonesia on ayahuasca. So I'm sure the shamans are kind of baffled by this in a sense, the ones that know about it. But uh, this is essentially like, like all antigens, like all hallucinogens. These are essentially vegetal scalpels 
and that allows the healer to understand, uh, examine, uh, treat, and sometimes cure ailments which have an emotional basis, something that our own physicians, for the most part, cannot do. So once again, we have to be careful to not oversell this, like the ethnobotanist uh, is, is always careful not to do, which is to claim that ethno, that ayahuasca is, is the cure for everything or the shamans can cure everything. Another important proviso is, you know, this, this is strong stuff. And uh, the idea of people buying this on the internet and taking it at home as if this is like aspirin, I think is frankly foolish. So like any scalpel, it can heal uh, and it can cut. So yeah. I always tell people, be careful. Yeah, that's one of my concerns too, because you have these monoamine oxidase inhibitors in the brew that can in, you know, interact with other medications that people might be taking. And again, I think the difference between taking ayahuasca under a Western lens versus a, an indigenous lens is that under the Western lens, if you're just ordering this on the internet and taking it, you're missing the whole point. It's, it's about ceremony. It's about connectivity. Um, and you're not going to have the same experience. Um, when taking it. Well, I, I, I almost completely agree. I have heard of people who've had great success stories, uh, that they didn't do it in a ceremonial context, but people have actually died not doing it in a ceremonial context. So I think, uh, uh, given the choice, one should always do it with a guide, with a shaman, with somebody who's knowledgeable. Not everybody has that opportunity, but you know what? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't take antibiotics uh, over the counter either, which a lot of people do, uh, particularly in third world countries. Yeah. So it's just something that people need to understand. Uh, it can help you. It can hurt you. And it's not to be trifled with. So, yes, I agree with you on that. Absolutely. Um, moving on to some other aspects of the book, I'm, well, first, I'm a huge fan of history and of understanding the works of, um, scientists in the past. You wrote a lot about, um, Alexander von Humboldt's journeys and, um, his experiences in the Amazon and some other scientists as well. I mean, I don't know if you can touch on some of their major findings, um, that you highlight in the book. Well, von Humboldt is the the best known first uh, scientist in the Amazon, even though in the book I talked about Maria Silva Marion, who's actually a divorced German housewife who went to the Amazon 100 years before Humboldt and did incredibly important work in entomology. But Humboldt in the Amazon is perhaps best known for his work on electric eels. And what's particularly cool about that is that these were actually described by Linnaeus uh, about 40 years earlier, and that uh, Volta uh, studied electric eels, and it's one of the things that gave him the idea for the first battery, so all of us who enjoy electricity all the time uh, owe a debt to Volta uh, and the Amazon and the electric eels. And here's why the story isn't over, because just last year, scientists found two new species of electric eels. Just last year, they found out that electric eels can actually produce 20% more electricity than we thought. And now we're studying these electric eels to find how to build tiny batteries that can be implanted in the body, like for pacemakers and stuff. So a, a creature in the Amazon that's still been studied after 250 years still has lessons to teach us. 
That's just amazing. Such a, such an interesting story and interesting discovery. Um, this made me think for some reason also of the work that was done on curare poisons. Um, have you, have you ever witnessed hunting with curare darts? <laughs> yes. I've been with plenty of uh, hunters with curare tipped arrows and, you know, one of the Holy grails for ethnobotanist work in the Amazon at least is to find a uh, curare, see it being made. And, uh, I have, done that on many occasions actually i found a new variety of curare in the northeast amazon it is a strychnospace curare that uh is is from a different part of the strychnos genus than the more common strychnos curares and i, I count i talk about the first discovery of strychnospace curares in my new book which was done by the incredible charles waterton and when i say i found it i'm always careful not to say i discovered it because as Schulte's often said, ethnobotanists don't discover anything. We just learn what the Indians, what the indigenous peoples teach us. So that uh, there are new poisons out there. I talked earlier about why poisons are as important as medicines, because in some cases, poisons are medicines. And of course, the race against time is that with the advent of the shotgun, that the old ways of making and using curares are being lost. And, you know, it's once again, the human race doing something very stupid, which is losing and wasting human knowledge that's been accumulated over thousands of years that could be of benefit to industrialized societies around the world. Yeah, I, I know my first encounter with Karari was um, 20 years ago in the Peruvian Amazon. And I have to say, when I first went to the Amazon, I was shocked by how many people were wearing Western clothes, I guess, in my... Yep. My visions of grandeur, I'd, ex- I'd expected everyone to be in kind of, you know, palm uh, skirts and, or, you know, uh, cloths. And, right. yeah, and, and so it was, it was very strange. And then everyone's hunting with guns rather than um, Karari. But as I went deeper into some of the um, tributaries, you know, and started working with some different Yagua villages, I found an elderly man that still hunted um, with a traditional um, blowgun and the curare dart, but I've never been witness to seeing how the actual poison was made. So that really is a whole, holy grail um, for ethnobotanists to see, um, because it's just an amazing amount of chemistry and also it revolutionized surgery, right? I mean, the ability to relax the muscles in the way that, ways that it can. Exactly. And these are plants of, of power and knowledge that have a strong effect in the human body. And as Paracelsus said 400 years ago, the dose makes the poison. In other words, uh, what's a poison in a large dose could be a medicine in a smaller dose, like the case with curare. What's a poison could teach us new things about the human body, like curare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I really don't like hearing about the silver lining of the pandemic. But I'll tell you this. We're all locked out of the Amazon right now, and many of the indigenous peoples are locked in. But the, the free flow of goods from the cities has been cut off for the most part. So all of these people who got dependent on shotgun shells don't have access to shotgun shells. And I'll bet you that there is a resurgence of interest and use of curare because that's something they can make on their own. Mm. So one of the unforeseen aspects of this terrible situation in which we all find ourselves. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the key key factors around ethnobotanical knowledge is it really is the key to resilience of communities, the key to resilience of cultures is 
you know, those centuries of knowledge that's been handed down from generation to generation and how to survive using local resources. Um, this is something we're so disconnected from in the West. I've, I've been excited to see how many people have started to started attempts at home gardens. Um, I can tell you as, as someone that, that teaches a lot of college students a course on food, you know, many of them have never seen a tomato plant before or even know how to make something as simple as guacamole. I mean, there's just such a disconnect from where our food come from, comes from and how to process food ingredients if they're not already you know, pre-processed and pre-packaged for you. Well, one of the unforeseen aspects of this, this pandemic is probably an enhanced self-reliance, an enhanced need and understanding and desire to be able to feed and take care of ourselves. And uh, something I've long preached, and I, I use that word carefully and not very often to my indigenous colleagues, is you need to be less reliant on the outside world uh, where possible. The point being that you guys do not have very powerful antibiotics, as far as I know, in your plants. You can certainly you know, fend off bacteria for minor cuts and and, and abrasions, but for deep infections, you really need antibiotics as far as I know. But many of the things the missionaries are giving you to treat minor ailments, you can treat safely and effectively with your own plants. And now in this period where they're cut off from the city, the fact that we have a shaman's apprentice program sponsored by the Amazon conservation team means that they know the plants their elders had and they know how to use them and they are in fact using them. So this was a valuable lesson the value of which is being demonstrated every day in the period in which we are living. Oh, that's fantastic. And could you tell us a little bit more about the Shaman's Apprentice Program? Because I think this is something that more people should be made aware of. Well, you know, when I started my work in the Northeast Amazon in 1982, I got there and there were about 20 shamans, but they were like the last of the, of the, of the mastodons because the knowledge wasn't being passed on. Nobody thought it was interesting. Nobody thought it was useful. Nobody thought it was effective. The missionaries taught them not to use it. It was the devil's work. And I said, teach it to me. I'll write it down in your language. I'm not going to publish it. I'm not going to share it with the outside world. And I'll give it back to you in written form, which I did eight years later. And at this point, there was a realization, because the only book they had in their language was the Bible, that this was valuable and important, and they really should hang on to it. And there was increasing realization that the outside world was interested in this. And when I say interested in this, I mean, it didn't go out and sell copies of the book. It meant that they had it to, to learn themselves, to teach their kids, and that they could make money as shamans uh, producing medicine to treat not only people within the village, which treatment was free, but people from the outside world would come in and say, you know, I've got this infection, uh, I've, I've got this uh, aching knee, uh, I've got this other problem, could, could you try treating me and, and, and see if it works? And often it did, not always, but it put money in their pocket, it showed the value of, of, of this knowledge, and it meant they didn't have to go off to the gold fields um, or the timber lot to put a little money in their pocket. So in that sense, it's become very successful. And there are now four shaman's apprentice clinics providing treatment within the village to the local tribes people, but to which uh, people from the outside world come and receive treatment based purely on traditional methods. Yeah, it's such a wonderful program. It, it's so important to have, as you mentioned, those economic incentives as well, because, um, you know, it, 
it's as you we kind of try and find a balance between emerging economies. Um, you have extensive resource extraction in the Amazon. How do local people then provide for their families? Um, it's it's a it's a delicate balance that has to be found there. Um, totally true. And you know, proof of concept, proof of concept, Cassie, is that we've been doing this with these clinics for over ten years. So it's not like we built a nice traditional hut and put some shaman in front and put a stethoscope around her neck and took a picture. You know, if you can run something in the rainforest for ten years, that that means it's a, it's a working model and not just a cool idea that may or may not pan out. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I wanted to explore a bit of this issue of resource extraction, and I think that a lot of people are unaware of how our choices in the West actually have real on-the-ground effects and impacts on the Amazonian um, landscape and on the livelihoods and lives of indigenous people. You mentioned a moment ago logging and gold mining um, we also have a lot of resource extraction and, and destruction of forests for farming. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, this concept that, you know, uh, conservationists, environmentalists are against development or against people is obvious nonsense. But there's good ways to do it and really bad ways to do it and less bad ways to do it. So this idea that, oh, Brazil's a poor country, we got to cut down all the rainforest to create jobs, is not true. Because if you've been in the, uh, if you've been in the soy plantations that replace uh, rainforests in, in, in much of the Brazilian Amazon, it's all mechanized agriculture. Now, this isn't to point the, the finger at the Brazilians, because monoculture and mechanization, that's the capitalist system. It's the same thing here. But when you're telling people, oh, we're a poor country, we need to do this to create jobs, and you're not really creating that many jobs, this is a, a, a false dichotomy. So in an age where we're interested in slow food, in an age where we're interested in organic agriculture, in an age where we're increasingly anxious not to abuse nature and create systems that lead to uh, an explosion of parasites or bad protozoans or bacteria or viruses, I think it's it, 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 we're in a, a, a period right now where people can reassess a bit and find out where this resource destruction and just mowing down the rainforest in Southeast Asia and destroying orangutans to have cheap palm oil. I think I'd rather have a, a planet where we have lots of orangutans than cheap Nutella. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, as you mentioned, palm oil. I know you cover soybean in your book as well and cattle grazing. Um, a lot of beef is being pastured on these um, savannas that have also been created through destruction of rainforest habitats. And I think one thing that you do really beautifully in the book is explaining um, nutrient cycling and also the fact that Amazonian soil is not a great place to grow crops. Um, and yeah, could, maybe you could explain a little bit about this idea of terra preta and, and what that is and what does that mean in terms of, of cultivation of crops? Well, when the first European uh, explorers came into the Amazon, they were pointed to areas uh, known as Terra Preta, Terra Preta Indio, the black earth of the Indians. And they were such racists, some of them, that they couldn't believe that this rich soil had been created by the Indians because these are primitive people. 
obviously it was result of volcanic activity except that there's no volcanoes there <laughs> yeah. except for the very far west along the andes so people are still unraveling the mystery of this black soil in which you can grow three crops a year and you don't need uh you don't need fertilizer and what can we learn from these indigenous peoples and replicate not just in amazonia but a around the world and once again it is an, an opportunity like all ethnobotanists look for or, or know or learn from where the indigenous peoples got there first and they figured out the answer to some of these uh, questions and problems that plague us even in the 21st century. And so one of the things that many people argue, in, including me, is let's make more and better use of terra preta and let's find out how the indigenous peoples have made it and are making it and learn from that again around the world. And also this idea that Eo Wilson, you know, the greatest biologist of, the, of the, the second half of the 20th century, said, if we want to save the world, we've got to protect 50% of the land. And that's true around the world. Um, protect 50% of it and then intensively do whatever we need to do, create cities, uh, create farmlands, and the other 50% of it. Here's the great irony. The Brazilians have already done that. 50% of the Amazon is protected area. 25% is national parks, 25% indigenous reserves. Let's just protect that and intensively farm on the rest of it. And then everybody can be happy. Instead of going after virgin rainforest or primary forest, you know, the little bit that remains in the US or Canada or even less in Europe, that should be seen as a seed corn. Let's protect that and more intensively and, and more intelligently farm, which has already been deforested or disrupted and, and that's a win-win situation. But, you know, it's one of these things, it's kind of like peace in the Middle East. You know, we know the broad outlines of, of a deal. That's, that's pretty straightforward. It's the details yeah. and the vested interests that, that make it difficult and some would say impossible to come up with this win-win solution. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I think a lot of these pressures with monoculture and, as you said, mechanization really drive these large-scale um, destruction of, of, of different landscapes. And you mentioned earlier this emphasis on not using monoculture in indigenous farming techniques. And um, you also go into detail on this in the book around the value of biodiversity in crops. And maybe at this point we could just highlight some of the major types of, of crops that are cultivated by local indigenous people in the Amazon. And um, what does it mean to have a biodiverse food system there? Well, in my first book, I quoted uh, Edgar Anderson, uh, a famous economic botanist of the early 20th century, when he went to Guatemala for the first time and looked at an indigenous garden for the first time. And he thought, wow, what a rat's nest. What a mess. You know, the Western model is corn growing in a straight row. Mm -hmm. And then he realized that there was a there was a agronomic genius there. Yeah. That by growing things that way, he didn't need to worry about shading the soil from the tropical rains. That they didn't need to worry about pest infestations because there were so many varieties the pests just couldn't sweep through like they often do in monocultures. Didn't require massive applications of pesticides like you need to do in a, a monoculture plantation. And so once again, it was a, a Westerner with a PhD saying, oh, these are uh, primitive, ignorant people, when actually they were using a different system, which in some ways was complementary 
to ours in some ways is better than ours. Look, I, I don't mean to insist that, you know, we all need to do uh, these types of indigenous gardens and we could feed the world probably with 6.6 .6 billion people, not quite. I'm saying that we need to manage our monoculture plantations better and smarter and need to have more of these smart food uh, agriculture everywhere. Look, I was at this uh, great economic botany um, conference put on by our colleague Glenn Shepard about two years ago in Manaus, mm. at the, uh, not in Manaus, in Belang at the mouth of the Amazon, Brazil. Brazil's not a, a culture or country obsessed with food like my hometown in New Orleans or like Italy or like Suriname even. But I was stunned to see all of the slow food Amazon movements and manifestations there in terms of, you know, organic products, in terms of using the different chili peppers, in, in terms of new uh, varieties of hot chocolate based on uh, the many Amazonian palms like Mike Bailey has studied for many years and producing a new cuisine, uh, high end uh, markets, you know, charging a little more but mm -hmm. infinitely tastier and more interesting. People want different things to eat. You know, when I was a kid growing up in, in New Orleans in the 60s, going to a Chinese restaurant was, you know, a wild cultural experience. Uh, Thai food, nobody had heard of this stuff yet. Yeah. People just want new and different things to eat and drink. And the tropics got a lot more to offer than the temperate zone. Well, speaking of drinks, um, what can you tell us about tiki cocktails and how are those related to the, to the rainforest? Well, here is a whole, uh, at this point, probably a multi-million dollar industry created from tropical plants. Mm -hmm. When Americans went off to fight in World War II, I think what it was like to live on a farm in Iowa in the, in the, the late 30s, you know, no color TV, no tropical crops these guys had never eaten a pineapple much or seen a pineapple probably yeah so they go off to fight in in the south pacific and they're surrounded by tribal peoples living a uh, a pretty idyllic lifestyle and then when they went back to the u.s they missed the tropics i mean to me it's kind of reminiscent of of the the wizard of oz you know where dorothy lands in oz and everything's in color that's got to be what it was like if you grew up in in the american midwest in the 30s and so there was a market for that tropical tribal experience. And, and, the, and Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic realized that, that market was there and they created bars based on this concept. These were the first tiki bars. This has been told in detail by my, my buddy, a Beach Bumberry, who's written, I think, five books on the origin of, of, of tiki culture and cocktails. I mean, nobody had ever drunk a Mai Tai <laughs> or a pina colada before. In fact, there were no pina coladas in the Southeast, in the South Pacific, uh, until these guys came up with it, probably because there weren't any pineapples in many of these places. And so they could bring together these tropical, uh, plants into these drinks and market to an American public hungry for new tastes. And that was the origin of the tiki movement. And, and my buddy, uh, Beach Bumberry, Jeff Berry, decided that okay, let's give these people what this is really all about, which is the best fresh uh, pineapple juice, uh, the best fresh uh, passion fruit juice, because that was the origin of the tiki moment, which we got away from because the capitalist system says, oh, we can just make passion fruit powder and you know, nobody's yeah. going to miss it if we're, not, if we're using canned fruit. And so it's all based on tropical plants. Now, as you and I know, very few of the tropical plants 
or available to most of the American public, but the hunger is there. The, the demand is there. So this whole rebirth of the tiki movement is to not only bring fresh pineapple and, and, and fresh passion fruit and fresh papaya to the tiki bar, what else is out there? So how many ways can you make drinks using pineapples and papayas and coconuts? And the answer is when you bring in all these wild and wonderful plants from Indonesia or from the Amazon or from the Andes, the, the potential is limitless. So anybody who thinks we've gotten all the medicinal plants from the, the tropics is as foolish as anybody who thinks we've gotten all the great food plants from the tropics. And that's why it's such an exciting time to be an ethnobotanist in terms of being able to move these tropical plants around uh, faster and quicker and fresher than ever before. Of course, the downside of this globalization is we did the same thing with coronaviruses. Mm. Because when the Black Plague hit Europe in the 1400s, it took about 300 years to move it around the world. Well, in the case of COVID-19, it took a couple of months. Yeah. Planes, trains, and automobiles are our friend and our enemy. Yeah, yeah and there's, it, it's, it's a fascinating time, like you said, for trade, but there, it comes at a cost um, when it comes to spread of disease and ease of spread of disease. Well, this, this makes me think also of spread of disease um, historically in the Amazon. And you write about some of the atrocities that were, you know, ha that occurred um, with European explorers that came to the Amazon spreading disease, but also, you know, um, uh, enslaving local people. Uh, this continued on into the the period of the rubber boom. And, you know, what's, what is your perspective on that? And where do you think, do you think that we're going to be able to move past that, that kind of trend of, of, of atrocities that have been placed upon people in, in these um, tropical locations? You know, as a fellow student of history, Cassie, I think the past predicts the future. Mm. And the past indicates that people are pretty inhumane to people. Yeah. Uh, the, the good news in the age of, of the internet and everybody having a cell phone, it's kind of hard to commit atrocities on the same scale as, as people have been inflicting on people since the dawn of civilization and long before. So I like to think that the upscale of this communications revolution is it makes it harder to get away with doing bad stuff. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is people still do bad stuff to people although we can now see it on YouTube all the time. So this, this, this idea of, of, of technology being the panacea is obviously oversold, um, but there, there's a pretty strong upside when all bad things can be filmed and it makes people think twice before they do it. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, people ask me in the Amazon, is a glass half full or half empty? Well, by definition, any glass that's half full is half empty. <laughs> so that uh, there's good news with bad news. Same thing with plane strains and automobiles. Same thing with uh, disease. The same thing with the introduction of new uh, plants uh, as, as foods or medicines. So we're, when you're living through history, it's really hard to understand it. Look, people are still fighting over World War II, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. it's not like uh, you or I can say this is how it is and this is how it's going to be. Uh, we live in interesting times. There's reasons for hope and there's reasons uh, to, to, to be afraid and depressed at the same time. Yeah. 
Well, to leave things on a hopeful note, I wanted to ask if you could share a bit of your vision for the Amazon conservation team. I know the team's been doing amazing work over the years um, in collaboration with local indigenous tribes. And where do you see this going? And is there any way that our listeners can help you out in these efforts? Well, as president of the Amazon conservation team, you can find us on the web at amazonteam.org and find out more about this work with tribal peoples. We just touched on and on many of the of the really exciting and um, important efforts that we have underway, always in partnership with indigenous uh, colleagues and often, uh, more often than not, in partnership with local academics or, or, or local governments where possible. So the important thing is to know what the challenges are. The important thing is to know what the opportunities are. And I get very frustrated by people say the Amazon is screwed. The Amazon is gone. Nothing. But done. the Amazon's a big place. And the idea that we should just throw up our hands and say, you know, it's all gone is ridiculous. But the idea of saying, well, what will, will be will be is ridiculous. And the idea of saying that, oh, we'll just work this out is equally ridiculous. So the battle has been joined. Um, it hasn't been decided. You know, in the best case scenario, indigenous peoples will receive the outside help by concerned members of the outside world, like you and me, um, to be able to control their environmental and cultural destiny. In the best case scenario, governments will realize that rampant deforestation has a negative impact on their own rainfall, their own agriculture. Um, in the best case scenario, the global community will join together to realize that uh, protecting the environment around the world isn't just because those of us who love nature should be able to roam free in, in, in pristine tropical forests or pristine temperate forests, that all of us concerned by COVID-19, which is all of us, have to understand that this is caused by abuse of nature and that some of the cures uh, may be in nature. So this is a, a win-win situation. So what we need to do is have a more holistic view of nature in terms of our own well-being. Uh, we can be selfish here. This is for our own benefit. This is not just because protecting nature is an ethical exercise, which I think first and foremost it is, that we as ethnobotanists need to be concerned about nature because we want those new medicines. We want those new tiki cocktails. We want those indigenous societies to thrive and make this part of the wonderful world into which we were all born. Because when I have people say to me, well, extinction's always been part of uh, the natural world. Yeah, it has been. But you know what? I don't want to live in a world that's just pigeons and cockroaches. Because that's the world in which we will live if we're just stupid and greedy, uh, as many people are. Yes. So on the one hand, the glass is half full. On the one hand, the glass is half empty. I want a glass that's more full and less empty. That's a great, that's a great point. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show. Um, this has been, as always, insightful to speak with you and learn about all the interesting history and science of the Amazon. And um, thank you also for sharing your knowledge of conservation in the area and kind of where things stand right now. Well, thank you, Cassie. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to maybe even a, a return engagement at some point. Great. 
I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 quarantine period. You can find Dr. Plotkin's book, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know, from any of your major booksellers. Be sure to subscribe to the show. We've got an awesome lineup of topics and guests for you this season. And please take a moment to share the link to your favorite episode with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.